what I want to do is to provide a context that is uh, historical, social, and to some degrees political uh, regarding censorship. Censorship of the printed word has been going on for a very long time, since the Greeks and the Romans and before that. The Old Testament, for example, tells us, tell it not in Goth, publish it not in the streets of Escalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Plato wrote, the poet shall compose nothing contrary to the ideas of the lawful, or just, or beautiful, or good, which are allowed in the state, nor shall he be permitted to show his compositions to any private individual until he shall have shown them to the appointed censors and the guardians of the law, and they are satisfied with them. Anaxagoras, a 5th century Greek philosopher, may have been the first to be condemned for his beliefs. He believed that a superior intellect had imposed with purpose order on the physical world. Think of him as an early advocate of intelligent design. He believed that the conventional gods were mythical and that they had been endowed by men with human attributes. Anaxagoras' writings caused him to be imprisoned and charged with impiety. In spite of being defended by the renowned Athenian statesman Pericles, Anaxagoras was fined, banished, and ended his life in exile. Euripides, poet and playwright, also questioned some of the legends of the gods and seemed to doubt the sanctity of oaths. He avoided conviction of impiety only by showing that the oath in question, in one of his plays, lacked divine sanction and therefore wasn't sacred. Talk about lawyering. <coughs> Art didn't fare much better than literature. The proscription of graven images, Exodus 24, prohibited Jewish sculptors from attempting busts or statues of humans. This ban was extended in Deuteronomy, which forbade the likeness of any beast that is on earth, any winged fowl that flies in the heaven, anything that creepeth upon the ground, any fish that is in the water. So, what, the inquiring mind wants to know, was left to be painted or sculpted? Censorship presents three recurring themes. The first theme, from before the first millennium until Gutenberg's invention of movable type in, in the mid-1450s, the censor was the state, and the entwinement of church and state meant that objects of censorship were writings deemed to be heretical. Now, we would probably regard Anaxagoras as a cosmologist, at least, or even as an earlier proponent of a theory of evolution, but we wouldn't regard him as religious or theological. As long as the church was also the state, the former's decisions became actions of the latter. Various councils, Council of Ephesus, Council of Nicosia, etc., all issued orders condemning 
writings and teachings and ordered the writings destroyed and possession of the writings, not authorship, possession of the writings, criminalized by the threat of death. Heresy for these councils included interpretations of principles, advocacy of new ideas, attributing false utterances to martyrs. I love this one. False utterances by martyrs, how would anyone know? As the first millennium was closing, heretics were still forced to burn their works. In Bradbury's words, they were, they were firemen of the first millennium and or imprisoned for life. The monk Gottschalk was punished for writing refutations of certain doctrines of St. Augustine, regarding reproduction, by the way. In the 13th century, Pope Gregory forbade the readings of the works of Aristotle until these had been purged of heresy. And then there were numerous burnings of the Talmud ordered by several popes in the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th century. The game changes with Gutenberg. The invention of movable type combined with two earlier inventions, the codex and paper, made possible the creation and distribution of printed books. A printer could produce multiple copies of a, at one time. A typical press run became about a thousand copies, whereas a scribe could produce only one copy at a time in a very small number in a, in a lifetime. By the year 1500, 50 years after the Gutenberg invention, 255 towns in Europe had printing presses and printers and a typical press run had increased from 1,000 copies to 1,500. Although church and state were still entwined, the threat to orthodoxy was clear. Heretical writings could be reproduced and distributed rapidly in hundreds of copies. Thus, destruction of a writing was not the destruction of the ideas it contained, but rather destruction of only one copy of the ideas it contained. Think Granger and the Book People in 451. Hence a list of works which were prohibited not to be read or owned needed to be created. And one was. Index Librorum Prohibitorum, first published in 1559 and revised thereafter at 50-year intervals. As a sidebar, I would observe that the copy that this library holds is missing. <laughs> While Gutenberg had made it easier to produce multiple copies of offensive texts, the techniques for suppressing them remained the same. Declare the contents heresy, brand the author a heretic, seize and destroy as many copies as possible, arrest and imprison or kill the author. But now it was also necessary to prohibit reading of the work, since it was unlikely that all of the copies had been destroyed. Church and state were still intertwined, so offense to government and offense to religion were synonymous. And even though literacy levels were low in the population as a whole, there were readers in all social classes. Although there were some economic impediments to widespread ownership of books, nonetheless, the very existence of multiple copies 
enabled greater access by greater numbers of people to writings of all kinds, even more so in the light of increasing size of press runs. The stirrings of democracy, the writings of John Locke, uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, Rousseau, signaled the beginnings of a greater separation of church and state and created a vacuum. The rationale for censorship could no longer be heresy. Enter the second theme, sex. Bowdler Shakespeare excised whatever, quote, cannot with propriety be read aloud in a family, end of quote. No sex scenes from Othello or Henry V. George Eliot, a.k.a. Marianne Evans, upon request from her publisher, altered a line in the manuscript for Mill on the Floss from, quote, patient, loosely hung, child-producing woman, unquote, to patient, prolific, loving-hearted woman, end quote. Flaubert, Hardy, and other novelists, Dreiser in the 20th century, trimmed their language. William Thackeray, as editor of Cornhill magazine, refused to publish Lord Walter's Wife by Elizabeth Barrett Browning because, quote, our readers would make an outcry over the account of unlawful passion felt by a man for a woman. Stephen Crane's novel, Maggie, A Girl of the Streets, was published anonymously and in a small press run because of its subject. The late 18th century to the early 20th century marks a significant transition in the history of censorship. It witnessed the end of effective political control of the printed word in the West, Europe and America. For de Tocqueville, this was a necessary consequence of the sovereignty of the people, and for John Stuart Mill, it was the necessity to the mental well-being of mankind on which all their other well-being depends. Heresy was also gone as an effective basis for censorship. Sex would persist as a rationale, but neither heresy nor sex could control the publication of materials. Additional rationales would be needed in the 20th century, and two new themes were forthcoming, national security and, more recently, family values. During the Second World War, Franklin Roosevelt issued an executive order classifying information, quote, defining certain vital military and naval installations and equipment. This order was authorized by a 1938 law concerned with protecting information relative to certain national defense interests. Each president since Roosevelt has issued an executive order regarding classification. These orders vary in some details, but generally tended to increase the amount of information that would be classified and the length of time it would remain classified and less time before automatic, uh, uh, sorry, uh, the amount that would be classified and the length of time it would remain, it would remain so. Until President Clinton, whose executive order provided for less classification and less time before automatic declassification and a higher standard for exemption from automatic classification. 
immediately uh, preceding uh, Clinton, the Reagan executive order on classification instructed that when in doubt as to whether to classify, classify. When in doubt as to the level of classification, prefer the higher and extend the period of time for declassification. The, Bush the current Bush administration has reversed the Clinton direction and has vastly increased the volume of information under classification. It has even created a new category, sensitive compartmentalized information which may not be technically classified but is treated as higher than even top secret. National security interests were manifest not only in classification but also in prior restraints on publication. In 1971, the New York Times had obtained a copy of the Pentagon Papers, a report from a two-and-a-half-year study of the Vietnam War. It published summaries of sections of the report on two days and then was temporarily restrained from further publication. An appeal on the restraint was lifted, but only after the Washington Post had already proceeded with publication of the entire report. Another byproduct of World War II was the harnessing of atomic energy used to such disastrous effect as in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In 1970, the Progressive magazine was ready to publish an article on how to make a hydrogen bomb. The information in the article came from unclassified government documents. An injunction, a prior restraint, was issued prohibiting the publication and it was upheld on appeal. The basis for the injunction was a provision in the 1940 Atomic Energy Act which provided that all information about atomic energy was born classified. A few words about the First Amendment and cyberspace and then family values. In the Telecommunications Reform Act, signed by President Clinton in the mid-90s, there was a provision called the Communication Decency Act, which prohibited, quote, indecent, unquote, content on the Internet. The Internet was then poorly understood by most of us, and certainly by members of our Congress and our courts. The CDA was challenged, and the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional, in part because indecent had no legal meaning. Obscenity and pornography do, and in part because the court concluded that the Internet was not like radio or television broadcasting, for which there was a safe harbor carved out in the case involving George Carlin's monologue, okay? But rather, the Internet was more like print and should enjoy the higher standard of print protection that the Internet. The concern of legislators when they passed the Communication Decency Act was explicitly sexual content and exposure of minors to such content. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, Congress. So a second effort to control content on the Internet was adopted, the Child Online Protection Act, 1998. This act has been declared unconstitutional three times, once by a district court, three times by the same appeals court, was remanded by the Supreme Court to the district court for a trial 
again found to be unconstitutional and returned to the appeals court who found it unconstitutional again <laughs> 10 years later. Okay? A third effort to censor content on the internet was adopted and upheld by the Supreme Court. I'm sure you've heard of the Child Internet Protection Act which requires schools and public libraries which receive certain grants of federal funds or discounted telecommunications rates to place filters on all the library's devices which access the internet. You will find in the act, you will not find in the act, the word filters or the word filtering. What you will find is a congressional euphemism protective technology devices. <laughs> I'll conclude my comments about cyberspace with this from the preeminent constitutional scholar Lawrence Tribe. Quote, new technologies should lead us to look more closely at just what values the Constitution seeks to preserve. Constitutional principles should not vary with the accidents of technology. The Constitution's norms at their deepest level must be invariant under merely technological transformations. So far I've touched on three themes that have served as the basis or motive for censors, religion, sex, national security, and now a fourth, family values. This one is easy. I'll give you two examples. Consider Dr. James Dobson's objections to SpongeBob SquarePants <laughs> or his cohort's objections to letters from Buster. There you have it. Band Books Week is our annual reminder of this history and an opportunity to renew our personal and professional commitment to free access to information and ideas in all formats. Free people must read freely throughout the world. Thank you. <laughs>